With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SubChina, each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin. Sales of its latest iPhone helped Apple post its first China growth in two years, while homegrown smartphone maker Xiaomi banked on strong India sales to extend its own nascent global rebound. China is the world's largest smartphone market and accounts for about a third of all global sales, making it a must-play arena for all global contenders. But it has also become one of the world's most contested markets with giants like Apple and Samsung vying for share with a vibrant field of homegrown local players like Huawei and Xiaomi. Speaking of Alibaba, the company reported a staggering 146% year-on-year profit increase in its latest quarter, powered by continued double-digit growth from its core e-commerce business. Alibaba is the dominant player in China's enormous e-commerce market, operating online shopping malls including Taobao and Tmall. It has had difficulty expanding its business outside China, even as it makes major investments both inside and outside of the country. But the company's consistent growth, despite its huge size, has made it a recent favorite among investors in one of the world's 10 largest companies by market cap. E-commerce giant Alibaba is moving to the big leagues, with word that one of its co-founders is buying into the NBA's Brooklyn Nets. Vice Chairman Zhou Tsai will pay $1.1 billion for 49% of the team, in the biggest overseas purchase of a sports team ever by a person or company with links to China. Tsai himself is Canadian, but is closely associated with Alibaba, one of the world's most valuable companies with a market capitalization of about 450 billion U.S. dollars. Tsai himself is worth about 9 billion U.S. dollars, making him the world's 250th richest man. China's Cyberspace Authority said it will create a database of online news practitioners, a blacklist of fake news platforms, and a mechanism for users to report fake articles in Beijing's ongoing bid to crack down on online rumors. The online news industry has been changing rapidly and is now facing many new challenges, the agency said. For practitioners to live up to the new challenges, these online portals should stay on the right track, spread positive energy, and strengthen staff training. 
Many Chinese use social media and websites as their primary source of news due to a broader distrust of official state media. This means that rumors and hoaxes can be easily and quickly spread, especially in an era where high smartphone penetration makes people prone to manipulation. The move is the latest in an ongoing government campaign to control online rumors. In 2013, China's top court ruled that writing libelous or false posts on the internet could be a crime punishable by three years in prison if they receive more than 5,000 clicks or are shared more than 500 times. I guess Donald Trump is lucky he doesn't have a Weibo account. Tesla said it hopes to sell hundreds of thousands of its moderately priced electric vehicles each year from a planned China manufacturing base, aiming to tap a new energy car market that will soon be the world's largest as Beijing phases out gasoline-powered models. CEO Elon Musk said the new facility would focus on production of the Tesla 3 and Tesla Y, two of the company's latest models aimed at the mass market, with prices starting at around $35,000 U.S. dollars. The company will only be able to meet its aggressive global sales targets if it can make and sell those models locally to avoid high costs of importing to China, he said. Tesla, the hairband, had no comment on the plans. Let's turn now to some of Taishin's editors and reporters for a deeper dive into some of the week's big stories. First up is Doug Young, senior editor at Taishin Global. Doug,、uh, the first story you want to talk to us about today is titled "Overseas Taxi Drive Takes Alipay to Hong Kong, DD to Japan." Not entirely clear what's happening just from that headline. So, what's the story here? These are two taxi stories, and and the bigger story here is that. These Chinese service companies, China, China has no problem exporting physical goods outside of China, but getting its services outside of China is a little tougher because it has a lot of competition, and you know there are local players in all these markets and so forth. So what the Chinese companies have been doing is they've really been trying to sort of ride on the coattails of Chinese travelers and, and really export their services. Specifically targeting Chinese people, you know, Chinese tourists、uh, who are like staying in U.S. hotels or European hotels or taking taxis outside of China. So in this case, there's two separate stories, but they both have a similar theme in that regard. One is that、uh, Didi, which is the big shared taxi or the taxi hailing、uh, app. Is supposedly close to a deal in Japan with a, working with a Japanese partner that would make their app usable in Japan. Now, why would people in Japan want to use it? Well, they wouldn't. But people from China who are in Japan, this would be great if I'm a Chinese person and I can use my Chinese language app that takes money from my Chinese bank account and everything, and I can hail a taxi without having to communicate with the guy, you know, verbally.、Uh, you know, this is a great idea. So、uh, the story there is that they're supposedly getting ready to roll this thing out, or they're near a deal that would、uh, get them into taxis in a bunch of Japanese markets, probably in the first quarter of next year. You also mentioned Alipay in the story.、Uh, what's going on there? The second story is is pretty similar. It's Alipay, which is the financial affiliate of Alibaba, and they're hugely popular in China. You know, more than half of Chinese people have Alipay on their smartphones and connected to their bank accounts. So it's a similar concept.、Uh, Alipay is getting into taxis in Hong Kong. And again, it's the same idea. People from China traveling to Hong Kong, you know, the language isn't as much of an issue there, but still, you know, it's just nice. You just hail somebody straight from your smartphone, 
and then you pay afterwards from your smartphone. And then what's interesting too in the Hong Kong deal is that actually they're targeting not only mainland Chinese, but they actually are targeting local consumers, which is sort of the next step. That's, I think, the progression these companies are looking at is first get in, get the infrastructure all set up mostly targeting Chinese partners. But then once you have that infrastructure in place, start tinkering with the systems to localize the language, um, you know, and, and target local audience. And, and this Alipay type in Hong Kong is actually targeting both mainland Chinese, but also local Hong Kongers. So it's got the ability to connect with a Hong Kong-based bank account and a uh, Hong Kong local language. Their language, they use classical Chinese characters. So it'll be a local Chinese edition. Okay, moving on to the next piece. In aviation, it looks like the U.S. and China have come to some kind of an agreement regarding aviation design. Uh, can you unpack this for us a bit, Doug? This story is, is definitely coming out because Donald Trump is going to be in Beijing this week. It's his first China trip. And on these big trips like this, uh, the two sides always want to have some good news to share. Uh, in this case, it's aviation, which is a, it's a big priority for both sides. Uh, you know, uh, the two big commercial aircraft makers globally are Boeing and Airbus. Boeing is the U.S., and China at the same time is trying to break into that market, and it's got a, its own company called Comac, uh, which is trying to make a competitor to the Boeing 737 and Airbus A320, which are both the sort of short-haul planes. So anyhow, uh, what's the news? The news is basically that the U.S. and, and China have apparently signed an agreement recognizing each other's certification of new aircraft. And it's a bit technical, but what it means is basically the U.S. is saying, hey, if China certifies an aircraft as flightworthy, we're going to accept that. They don't have to go through all the paperwork, all the testing locally, you know, because a lot of these markets each require their own certification process. And that takes time, uh, effort, money, and so forth. So this was a reciprocal agreement, which says U.S. will recognize China's certification of new aircraft and China will recognize U.S. certification of new aircraft. So what does that really mean then for both sides more concretely? The, the big significance for China, I think, is twofold. One is that it's a big feather in the cap of China's aviation authority, um, you know, basically saying we think your standards are up to snuff. Uh, you know, the U.S. is considered sort of the gold standard in a lot of certifying processes because it's the most mature. It's the biggest market. It often has the most rigorous standards. Uh, so for them to say we'll accept Chinese certification is you know, it's a it's a pretty big deal, and it's a feather in the cap for CAAC, which is the Chinese Aviation Authority. Uh, the second deal is it really should help both sides because, like I said, uh, Boeing, uh, China is is probably its single biggest market now, and they've forecast huge sales here. So it probably won't have all that much impact for Boeing, to be honest, because I don't know of any major new Boeing aircraft that are coming out. But if Boeing, you know, this is a new agreement that goes into perpetuity. Uh, so, you know, when Boeing, they just recently came out with that uh, new 787 in the last two or three years, this would obviously help that because it wouldn't have to go through the certification process in China. You know, and, and companies do come out with new plane designs and modified plane designs all the time. 
So this will probably save Boeing having to apply in China each time. And for China, it's probably even bigger because China is trying to break into this market. And the, the big plane that's on everybody's radar right now is called the C919. Uh, that one has just made its first two, I think, it definitely its, its maiden test flight and, and possibly a second one. But it, it still has a ways to go. But I, I think, you know, China's looking at trying to you know, get this into the order books of, of global airlines, you know, within the next decade. Uh, there's already a lot of orders from Chinese airlines, but not yet from foreign airlines. But before it can do any of that, it needs to get certified, go through the testing. And if this deal means that if, if it can go through that process in China, then bang, it can just get into the U.S. much quicker than it might otherwise. Excellent. We'll be following the story of COMAX 919 for sure. Uh, this next piece was really interesting. It's about Microsoft's CEO and the relationship between Microsoft and one of the big Chinese smartphone makers. So tell us, Microsoft Supremo, uh, what's his approach and uh, who's he been working with? What's he doing in China? Okay. Uh, this guy's name is uh, Satya Nadella, and he's been the Microsoft CEO for the last three years um, and the bigger story behind him is, is Microsoft, you know, first it was run by Bill Gates, uh, but after Gates left and even while he was still there, it was sort of stagnating and not really going anywhere. And then under the CEO after that, Steve Ballmer, uh, you know, I think general consensus is it sort of lost its maybe lost its way, you know, it, 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 it was still dominating the operating system, you know, Windows and so forth, but it really made a bad call by missing out on the smartphone market. It gave that up to Google with Android. Um, and so anyhow, this guy, this Nadella was bought in three years ago to sort of try and jumpstart the company. Uh, and Nadella's, he's had an interesting uh, approach in that, that short time. Uh, and one of those things that he did was China-related. Uh, last year, uh, he basically sold off most of Microsoft's smartphone uh, patents to this company in China called Xiaomi, which is a, sort of a hot local smartphone maker. Uh, and the backstory to that is that Microsoft had bought that business from Nokia, or mostly from Nokia, uh, Nokia's old uh, cell phone business, uh, and it just wasn't working for Microsoft. So Nadella, one of the first things he did was sell off all these patents to Xiaomi, which is sort of, I think his approach maybe is going to be to you know sell off some of these non-core businesses and, and work with third-party partners like Xiaomi. So anyhow, that's that's Nadella. He's been in in the driver's seat now for three years, and, and during those three years, this is his third trip to China, which, you know, averages one a year, and it's not too bad. It shows, shows how important they, they see the market here. And, and, you know, it is an important market. It's a huge market for them. Sasha Nadella actually visited a couple of people here. Is that, is that right? Uh, so who has he seen? One was that he had a, a meeting with Xi Jinping, which is Chinese, or who is Chinese president. Um, and I'm sure that was probably all handshakes and formalities and probably very little got actually done or said, but it was very symbolic. Uh, the second thing he did was he went and met with Xiaomi, which is that smartphone maker I just mentioned. And, and I think, you know, it's probably fair to say the, these guys are Microsoft's smartphone proxy now. You know, they're, they're going to be their big smartphone partner. 
Um, and then he also did a, a couple of appearances at Tsinghua University, which again is quite symbolic. Uh, Tsinghua is sort of China's equivalent of MIT, uh, the hotbed of science, you know, and, and sort of technology development. And it's not any coincidence that uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who's uh, Facebook's founder, has also done a few uh, speeches at, at Tsinghua. Uh, for some reason, uh, Beijing really likes it when big foreign tech people go to Tsinghua, apparently. So, you know, he's, he's been sort of hitting all the right buttons. Uh, Xi Jinping has actually also met with Zuckerberg and, and also Tim Cook from Apple. So, you know, I think the Chinese political leaders like to meet with these big global tech guys and show, you know, how they really want to push tech in China, you know, get away from this traditional manufacturing and so forth. Yeah, I, I believe U.S. News and World Report now ranks Tsinghua as like the number one school for computer science. So, yeah. Well, Doug, uh, thanks very much. And we will speak again next week. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Kaiser. Next up, we have Liu Xiao, finance reporter here at Caixin Global, whose uh, team has just published a big project on cryptocurrency. Our readers can check that out at caixinglobal.com slash project. So let's step back first and give a bit of an overview of what's happening with China and its cryptocurrency markets. Yeah, so China basically, from being one of the most active cryptocurrency markets, decided that it was going to shut its exchanges. And this happened, all of the exchanges shuttered by the end of October. So we basically followed the story from the beginning. Um, in September, the government came out with a document that basically said that these things called initial coin offerings were no longer allowed. And then after that, basically said that exchanging from RMB to cryptocurrencies and vice versa would also not be allowed through centralized exchanges. So uh, we ended up talking to a lot of ICO issuers, academics and lawyers about this and yeah, and created a, a project page with video and graphics and also text. So this project and, and the pieces that go into it give a great historical perspective. But let's jump forward here now uh, to the present and talk about what we can expect next from from c- cryptocurrencies. So interestingly, uh, the price of Bitcoin has actually recovered to an all-time high. Uh, recently, it hit six thousand three hundred and seven or eight dollars. Um, yeah, so it seems like what the regulators have done has done little to curb enthusiasm um, for investors. And we see this not only with Bitcoin, but other major cryptocurrencies, including Ether, Dash, Ripple. Um, they're also back up after sort of taking a bit of a dip after these sort of surprising regulations. Most of the people we talked to didn't foresee that exchanges were going to be uh, asked to close. It's hard to say what's next. I mean, um, a lot of the trading in China has moved to other markets. Um, Japan, for example, now recognizes Bitcoin as legal tender and uh, in September started basically licensing exchanges. So I think that's a market to watch for for cryptocurrency enthusiasts. And uh, and Hong Kong, uh, for the time being, has also not come down with any sort of curbs for these currencies. Lushal, let's talk a little bit about the underlying technology uh, behind Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, which is something that people don't really you know, understand that well, probably. Uh, we're talking about blockchain, of course. Uh, tell us a bit about blockchain and uh, Chinese government attitudes toward that particular technology. 
So the government was actually very careful to distinguish between cryptocurrencies and then their underlying technology, the blockchain. So the blockchain basically allows transactions to be verified through a network of computers rather than having a central authority or a trusted third party, which in many cases are central banks or banks, to verify and confirm this transaction. So you can see how this sort of distribution of trust into a decentralized network can be used in actually all sorts of applications. The government is looking at basically using elements of it in its own digital currency. We talked to a Shenzhen-based company that was basically using this for contracts uh, between banks and clients and then also for voting systems. So I think everyone we've talked to basically thinks that it's a very promising technology. And I think it's going to be a, a word that we're we're going to hear more and more about in the future. Liu Xiao, thanks so much. And we will talk to you again soon, I hope. Thanks, Kaiser. Yeah, talk soon. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com with your feedback. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and is produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn. And follow the news from China every day at SupChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care. <laughs>